0: Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. I'm your host, James Nurse, a pediatrician and the social media editor at The Journal. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining us. The podcast is a fortnightly update on a variety of metabolic topics. and We have recently started a short form podcast, briefly summarizing content from JMD reports. If you've been here before, I suspect you just want us to crack on with this episode on epilepsy and NGLY1 deficiency. Hello there. So today we're discussing a recently accepted article reviewing the epilepsy phenotype in NGLI one deficiency. And I'm delighted to be joined by the paper's lead author, Dr. Rebecca Levy, from Lucille Packard Children's Hospital in Stanford. Uh, Becky, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure.
0: So um, every time I think I'm starting to understand IMD, I once again realise how little I know. So could you start by clearing up something that's that's confusing me? Is, is NGLY1 a CDG or not a CDG? I
1: think that's a great question. So N-glywood deficiency is a disorder of deglycosylation, or in other words, it could be a CDDG if you want. Um, so if we consider CDGs, congenital disorders of glycosylation to be about generating or adding or modifying or recycling the glycosylation pathway moieties, then it's kind of within the very broad family. But there are also probably a lot of differences that we don't fully understand at this point between glycosylating and deglycosylating disorders. So here the gene NGLY1, it encodes a protein called n which is an enzyme that can cleave glycans, and thus it removes the glycosylated moieties from proteins that are just starting on the degradation pathway. And so without this enzyme, there are misfolded and unnecessary proteins that start to accumulate. And we're still learning about which are the most key aspects of pathophysiology in this disorder. Is there a particular toxic product that accumulates or is this more of a storage and accumulation type issue or does it become a secondary mitochondrial deficit? And most likely it's going to end up being a kind of a combination of these factors as well as other downstream effects. But similar to CDGs, in ngli one deficiency, there are multiple organs that are impacted. And here the key features of NGLI one deficiency are having a transient elevation in the liver enzymes AST and ALT which is known as a transaminitis, having minimal or no tear production, which is known as hypo or alacrima, having a hyperactive movement disorder, having injury to the nerves, carrying motor and sensory information in the limbs, which is known as a polyneuropathy, and then delays in development.
0: You said we have a lot to learn. Obviously, it's a relatively new disorder, just a decade old. It's ultra rare, although I suspect a little bit under-recognized. Within the paper, you've looked at a cohort that encapsulates almost a third of the known patients with the disease. How do you achieve that in ultra rare
1: disorders? First off, just a huge thank you to Grace Science Foundation and the families who helped us bring together this group of individuals. And I guess we kind of think about this the way we think about other rare disease research, which is that there are definitely challenges, such as having few individuals with the disorder and having not always access to the same amount of funding for rare disease research. But there are also so many benefits, such as having close relationships with families and other researchers and advocacy groups. And also in rare disorders, we all have to try to learn and share as much as possible between disorders to avoid recreating the wheel while adjusting it as necessary to each disease. And also in rare disease, we have to recognize that there's going to be acquisition bias in terms of who is getting diagnosed, meaning countries and individuals who have access to healthcare and sequencing who's able to participate in research studies, such as families living near research centers, connected with academic teams, or speaking the language of the researchers, or those who are healthy enough or financially able enough to be able to travel and come visit. And so family advocacy groups such as Grace Science Foundation are an invaluable support system for families and also individuals with rare disorders to be able to share their experiences and the resources But these organizations are also a boon to research teams because you end up with a centralized network of families that are already very engaged and eager to partner with researchers. And in this study, we had always designed to have a remote arm for international families in order to try to increase our our size and our numbers and our data. But during COVID, we learned that even more of these evaluations and visits could be virtual than we had ever intended. And we hope that this is something that will kind of persist on in, in, in the rare field. So, we hope that video conferencing and the development of validated remote research evaluations, either during live video visits or through submitted videos, can increase enrollment and participation in studies and also lower that bar to enrollment, which will help us increase diversity. On the plus side, when we work in rare disease, because we're dealing with smaller numbers of participants, we can take a really deep dive, either into phenotyping them or to going through the medical history and literature. So here we are able to go into the medical history and evaluation of each participant in order to really maximize the validity and the detail that we could put into our data. So not only are we indebted to GSF and the families, but also to the local providers who helped us accurately capture their neurologic medical history, which was very complex and nuanced. And then we also tried to maximize information from the literature by incorporating all of the available cases in the medical literature to determine if our cohort matched other published cases.
0: I think that's such an important idea, this, or, or how the pandemic has perhaps enabled us to rethink access to studies and trials, because I know for families with rare disease, they're always, especially now that with the internet, they're able to look much further afield for the studies. And we'll come to you saying, well, there's a study going on in Israel. How do I get in that? So um, it's great that you perhaps uh, are paving the way for, for future work. Um, You've talked a little bit about the how um, y- you were doing it. There was an in-person cohort, wasn't there as well? And mm-hmm. so I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about what you were doing with your groups.
1: Yeah, we were really fortunate. We had 15 individuals with NGLY1 deficiency who traveled from all across the states and several other countries for annual visits. And then they also did our quarterly remote evaluations along with our remote arm. And so, especially during COVID, we so appreciated the dedication of families in the study to traveling with their children, some of whom have medical needs. And, you know, while remote, as I just said, can be so powerful for increasing our numbers, the in-person part also is incredibly data-rich because we were allowed to do in-depth phenotyping. So we did multiple different types of neurologic and, and other phenotyping while they were on campus. And we were also able to have a lot of consistency because each assessment was done with a small group of researchers here at our center. who became very familiar with both the disorder and each participant over time. So that allowed us some really rich data collection that we could really compare across participants because of that, that in-person phenotyping.
0: So what can you now tell us about epilepsy and n one deficiency?
1: So we found that epilepsy is very common in n one deficiency, seen in almost 59% of our cohort. Um, And most individuals had their onset in infancy or early childhood, but a few of them were later on in adolescence, so a wider range than we had uh, expected as far as age of onset. And there were many, many types, or we call them semiologies of seizures. And several of these types are subtle and they're not easy to identify clinically. And so we hope that this paper will help providers educate families about signs of these particular types of seizures going forward in order to promote earlier recognition and then diagnosis and treatment. And fortunately, in our cohort, about a third of those with epilepsy were able to achieve complete seizure control, and a few of them continue to have very frequent seizures, but um, overall, we feel like the course of epilepsy and NGLY1 deficiency does not typically appear to be progressive or intractable. It seems like we can mostly um, either completely treat or control the seizures. Interestingly, we did not find any statistically significant associations between developmental outcomes and the presence of epilepsy. There, there was a trend towards being less likely to achieve verbal communication in those who have epilepsy. And so, overall, epilepsy turns out to be a very common symptom in NGLI 1 deficiency, which I said my hope is that we'll have better education and screening. And so, we're really excited because the gene NGLI 1 has actually been recently added to some of the major epilepsy panels. And we hope that this will lead to better identification of this disorder among those who experience seizures as their major symptom.
0: And you've said providers warning their families, as obviously there's always the risk that we be families warning their providers what they should be looking for. But <laughs> um, with all this data, and as I said, you've, you've captured really a third of the patients known to have this disorder. Are there any recommendations that you can make for those who find themselves caring for patients with NGLY1 deficiency?
1: Yeah, besides the education part, we had hoped that uh, we'd be able to give more specific recommendations about medication because we did have quite a few people on anti-seizure medicines. But the cohort was unfortunately too small to determine medication effectiveness. On the plus side, we found that there were many medications that were well tolerated and showed at least some benefit. And so while this doesn't tell us which one medication is indicated in this disorder, it does let us know that there are many options that um, providers can consider using. And in particular, we were very relieved to find that hepatically metabolized antiseizure medications did not appear to have adverse effects, given that liver dysfunction is also a common, albeit usually a transient or stable symptom in this disorder. And so while providers should still use caution and monitoring when they're dealing with hepatically metabolized antiseizure medicines, we hope that this expands the classes of medications that are considered available to individuals with N-gly1 deficiency.
0: I think that's certainly be a reassurance to people who are treating this condition. Um, I mean, certainly it's a great paper. And if you'd like to read it, then please click on the link in the podcast description. Or why not download the Wiley Online Library app and add the paper to your collection there. Becky, thank you again for joining me.
1: Such a pleasure.
0: And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.